I once loved this island. This is where I found peace and quiet. The peace of waves forever breaking on the shore. The quiet of tranquil moonlight on the sea. When the night wind rises and the fingers of the fog steal in, they say you can hear voices. They say it's the dead growing restless and calling to the living. I never believed it until that evening Bly came looking for me. But you always knew that marriage was out. I never lied to you. But I always thought that... Look, Bly, whatever you thought is your business. But it's all over. It's finished. You should never have come here, and you'll be doing yourself a favor if you take the first boat back. I can't go back without you. Please come back with me, Tom. Just tell her you changed your mind. Nobody even knows I'm on the island. I chartered a private boat over. I won't even go back to the club. I'll quit right now. Why, will you for heaven's sakes realize when a good thing is over? since you had yourself a big hot screaming ear full of forgotten horrors. <laughs> well, that's too long. Pull in close now for a crepuscular half hour or so of the Forgotten Horrors podcast with your hosts, John Woolley, Michael H. Price, and my own self, Wolf Brand Jack. <laughs> And thank you very much, Michael H. Price and, of course, Wolfbrand Jack, uh, for bringing us into another episode of the Forgotten Horrors podcast. I'm John Woolley, and uh, we're going to do a thing that we mentioned at last last podcast that we wanted to do, which was a a kind of a a shout-out to uh, the late Bird Eye Gordon, who died at age 100. Uh, well, a couple of months before we were doing this podcast. Right. And I believe he was on his houseboat. I know he was living in a houseboat toward the end of his life. And I think he was, uh, I think he was on his houseboat, uh, uh, at the very end. Not sure about that, but we loved Bert and I'm speaking as not only a fan, but as the former president of the Bert I. Gordon fan club, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> And I've got the membership cards to prove it. Love to love to catch that story. It was oh oh, visited Bert and Susan uh, in West Hollywood at their home back in 1962, and probably remains. I mean, 62. What is that? Is that 70 years ago? Good no, that can't be. It's got to be 60, right? right? 60 gotta be 60, years 60 years ago. Yeah, because I'm not that old. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> 84. I'm 74. So yeah, so 70 years. So eight, 60 years ago. I visited Bert and uh, and uh, along with my brother and my cousin Scott, who we've talked on this uh, on this podcast before. My cousin Scott McCarter uh, was the kid that uh, that comes to town and gets and tries to get into a fight with Opie in the One Punch Opie episode of the Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> and uh, so I was just surrounded by showbiz in '62 when we visited uh, when we visited in California. And one of the great things was visiting Bert and and Susan, and 
which takes us into Tormented, which we're going to talk about tonight. Um, and Susan, actually, Susan passed away. Uh, she predeceased uh, Bert. She passed away. Gosh, I guess it's about uh, 11, 12 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she was my first movie love. And before we get into all of that, Joey is looking at me saying, you know, you really, his, his stare is saying, you really <laughs> want to do a synopsis. So essentially, this is, yeah, so essentially this is about a, 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 a jazz piano player played by Richard Carlson, who's getting ready to marry into money. And um, he's at this, on the, an island where all of these folks live, including himself. And he's visited by sort of a, a, a person from his past, uh, not sort of, a person from his past uh, that he had a, an affair with, uh, a singer. And he doesn't really, they, they, they're on top of a lighthouse. He's trying to get rid of her. But, uh, and he doesn't really push her off, but she falls and he doesn't really try very hard to bring her back on top of the lighthouse. And from then on, it becomes, as you have so aptly put it before, it becomes a film noir. And uh, the the ghost of Vi, played by Julie Redding, uh, who is the... uh, Who's the the fem the dead fem fatale here? We have a ghostly we have a ghostly fem we have a a a, 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 a film noir with a ghostly fem fatale in it. And uh, <laughs> Susan Gordon and, and again as you've pointed out before, um, in I believe in in uh, Forgotten Horrors Seven is when we talk about this. Yeah. Um, th- there are three women in uh, in this character's life, Richard Carlson's character's life. One is the the woman he's going to marry. One is the, uh, the 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 femme fatale, and one is the the young girl who has a, a real fixation on him, and that's Susan Gordon, playing an eight year old. I think she was eleven at the time, and uh, mm-hmm. she and I were the same age. And uh, you know, I've seen just a range of comments and reviews uh, about Tormented, but upon seeing it again, you know, it's just a pretty good picture. Better than anybody is willing to. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at some of the, some of the obviously low budget, but lots of fun type uh, fan reviews. Right. And, you know, a cheesy, fun little horror film. Take it for what it is. I I think Gordon really stretched in this case. I do, too. Uh, he mm-hmm. did a lot. He did a lot of juvenile thrillers. Uh, he also did some very grim and serious, but ultimately silly pictures like The Colossal Man, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that they were weak in the story department, but... Uh, uh, Gordon did his, you know, his special effects were strictly DYI. Yes, he and, and his wife, yeah, he and Florida his wife, of course. Uh, but he he touched a real nerve here with this uh, obsession with the um, jazz artist who uh, is he or isn't he imagining the ghostly visitation. Right. Uh, I think we can take it literally, but there's still remaining. I mean, this guy's not a stable figure, and he's played very ably by 
Richard Carlson, a recurring figure in our Forgotten Horrors chapters, mm-hmm. uh, who was probably the the most intellectual leading man of uh, within and without that genre during the 1950s. I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, was the, he, was the, he was the man of science in mm-hmm. the uh, wonderful pictures of a magnetic monster of uh, the uh, the maze, for example. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and you know, he and he and Arthur Franz pretty well had the market cornered on the um, heroic man of science roles. Yes, but uh, yeah. Carlson, like Franz, who stretched in the Sniper, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carlson stretched occasionally. He's he's a He's not a particularly heroic figure in the maze, for example. Mm-hmm. No. And he's got that aristocratic air that makes you think of Vincent Price. Well, um, he's got that high, just looking at him, he has that high forehead, you know, that indicates. Got, yes, yes. Indicates exactly. intelligence. <clears throat> and, you know, Carlson could have played the lead in, for example, Detour. Yeah. <laughs> wow. which, is, which is another, which is another t- terrific uh, jazz crime thriller. Yes. Uh, from from the same general period. And fa- uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And a noir thing as well. And, exactly. You know, when you mentioned, when we were getting ready to, to, to do this, um, or a couple of weeks out, you mentioned this was a film noir. And, you know, when Joy and I watched this, it really came home to me. I mean, it's got it all. <laughs> you know, the voiceover, the film noir voiceover yeah. at the very beginning. Uh, now, he also did that, of course, I led three lives. He did it ad nauseum, and I led three lives. But but in film noir, there's a lot of voiceover. There's the jazz. There's the lighting in this picture. Mm-hmm. It's very noirish, you know? And then there's the femme fatale who is wrecking his life. <laughs> and it just happens to be, in this case, a ghost. Yeah. And it's very much, it's very much a, a, a film noir in the film noir vein, right down to the record that uh, that uh, Julie Redding allegedly cut. Which, you know, and one of the things I thought this is just apropos of nothing, but it's it's a seventy eight RPM record, and this is a film that came out in nineteen sixty. Yeah, and did seventy eights finally? What was a swan song for 78? You could still still walk into a record store in 1960 and buy a a brand new 78 RPM off the rack. Could you? Oh yeah, I did. I did a lot of, a lot of my, a lot of my novelty records like uh, Buchanan and Goodman's Flying Saucer. Yes. Yeah. Came uh, out on 78 RPM. I've got some, I've got some Elvis Presley's on 78. Mm -hmm. And Those were the sons, though, right? Sons and the victors. And the victors, the early victors. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. But and then the market suddenly became glutted about 1960 in that same period, even a bit later, because all the jukebox operators were ditching their their 78 machines in place of 45 RPM changers. Right. Right. So okay. We, so we had a lot of a lot of really like brand new 78s from jukebox inventory showing up in the record stores for like 10 or 10 or 25 cents a pop. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. that, okay. that was, that was a wonderful time. If you knew what to look for. Right. Exactly. What you can say about pretty much any time, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, if you know what to look for. If well, you know where you're looking. Yeah. But you know, this, I, I, this film 
I don't know. The, the older I get, the more I like it, I guess. I loved it, of course, in 1960, when I, but I was in love with Susan Gordon at that particular uh-huh. time. And, uh, just really, uh, and she's second build in this. Yes. And if you and look. It, and, it, and, and, and her consistency of style, uh, which worked so well for Burt Gordon on uh, Attack of the Puppet People. Yeah, and Boy uh, and the Pirates. Yeah, Boy and the mm-hmm. Pirates, definitely. Mm-hmm. She she could do any role called for, and mm-hmm. and not with not with actually affectation. She was just a natural kid. She was a natural kid. She absolutely was. I remember her telling me, you know, the the the, the lighthouse plays such an important part in this. I remember Susan telling me that there was no lighthouse when they shot this. That that mm-hmm. was later on. That was matted in and stuff later on, and they just went into like rooms and things. <laughs> so it was. Uh-huh. It's, it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating film in a lot of ways because it doesn't really the it almost I mean obviously it's Richard Carlson but it almost spins around Susan's character's perception of Richard Carlson you know what I mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the the idea that he you know she doesn't want to see his feet of clay and she's just uh, she and she and he are so close and uh it's just it's very interesting to me because she was this to me is like the the best picture she ever did. She did some very nice stuff, some very nice work later on, but I, to me this is this is just the best thing that she ever did. And wonderful, one of her yeah. best. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean she's wonderful in Twilight Zone when she plays that uh, that that the little girl and and uh, the little cr- girl in the uh, in the uh, leg braces mm-hmm. with J. Oh, Pat yeah. O'Malley. Sure. As the aliens, wonderful in that she's wonderful in a lot of things, but but, but to me this was this was uh, this was really really her picture in a lot of ways. She is the conscience of the piece. There you as go, as opposed to the ghost who really <laughs> just in it for the vengeance. That's right, exactly, exactly, and, uh, yeah. And I I I saw it as a new picture in 1960. And saw it again on repeat engagements at a couple of drive-in theaters, and uh, really couldn't get enough of it. I I I watch it often. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a there's a very there's a very good uh, print. Uh, some in circulation are pretty scratchy. Some are missing footage. I think the best print I've found occurs. <laughs> as filler of all things on a selection of short horror pictures. And this is like uh, called monsters crash, the pajama party. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's nice from, uh, uh, who put that out? Was that sinister cinema? Something that was something weird. Something weird. That yeah. was our friend, Mike, Mike Vraney. It's something Vraney, weird. Wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Vraney had a good eye for securing prints that didn't look beat up. Right. And whether his restorations were up to, you know, 4K standard today, that's right. the point. Uh, right. Good, clean print, nice down and dirty, uh, telecine transfer. Mm-hmm. And it's probably about as good as if you had seen it new in a theater. Well, now there's a beautiful print on YouTube. It's a, uh-huh. it's a really nice print on YouTube. I don't know quite how this fell in the public domain. You know, when it first came out in 1960, it was the second feature on uh, Double Bill with Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster. Oh, yeah. 
which was, some say, I guess, the first thing Bava, Mario Bava really directed. I believe that's right. Yeah. He was doing the special effects, and the and the director stepped aside, let him direct some stuff. And this is before Black Sunday, of course. Sure. And uh, this, I believe it's the first film Mario Bava, it's said to be the first film Mario Bava ever directed. I'm telling yeah. Joey this because he has a cat named Bava. That's how much he likes Mario Bava. <laughs> and uh, it was, and that was color. And of course, Tormenta was black and white. Uh, but I remember uh, seeing that at double feature when it first came out. I would have been 11 years old uh, at uh, the Maribel Theater in uh, in Chelsea, Oklahoma. And just absolutely, there's a scene that just stays with me, and I just don't know why, but it's it's one of those sort of sense of wonder kid scenes. And, you know, when you're following Susan and they're living on this island and everything's just so beautiful and there's a lighthouse and she goes up and Gene Roth is running this rest, outdoor restaurant, this alfresco uh-huh. restaurant. And she goes up, and and they obviously know one another, and she says something to the effect of, you know, she orders a hamburger, says, now, you remembered the pickles, right? And she says, well, you know, Gene Roth, who just was a villain in so many different things, and I was like, well, sure, try it out. She bites into it and just gives him, like, this big grin. That scene (laughs) has stayed with me since 1960 it's just yeah. such a beautiful scene and she was a beautiful little girl and got her little sailor hat on you know and all that kind of stuff but at the same time i mean the special effects if there's anything that kind of lets you down a little bit there's some some special effects in it that aren't great um yeah. especially i'm thinking of the of julie redding's head at, at one point where he's carrying it out is not particularly um um, what's the term I'm looking for here? Convincing, I think. It's too it's, obviously artifice. Yeah, it is. But most of it, I mean, in Joe, is it Turkle or Tur- Turkel? Do you remember? Turkle, Do you know Turkle, Turkle. Turkle. Joe Turkle, who 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 Bert I. Gordon must have really liked because he's the he's the um, genie and boy in the pirates, and he also shows up later on in Village of the Giants. But he is this jive-talking guy yeah. that, uh, that, that, and just completely amoral, that does a really good job of that. And his scenes with Susan are, to me, just kind of full of menace, you know? Oh, he's, yeah. he's just a menacing guy. Well, I, he you stayed know, that way. Stayed that way. You'll re- remember him also as the bartender in The Shining, the 1980 version. Oh, that's right. That's right. Amazing. That. Yeah. yeah, Joey. Yeah, Joey. Joey knows him from that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, yeah, you got, yeah, you got the millennial hooked in now. <laughs> the, the real, the real uh, incidental treat for me in Tormented is Paul Free's voiceover. Now he does that for the dad. Is that correct? For uh, he's the da- the dad. Yeah, yeah, he's he's he's. Uh, let me see. Yes, the husband of Lou Jean Sanders, or father. I'm sorry, father of Lou Jean. Father of Lou Jean right, Sanders. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard that Paul Free's voice, and I said, I know that guy. Who is it? <laughs> and it turned out he was he was uh, one of the primary voices on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Right, right. At the same time, and also. Uh, my favorite Spike Jones record album, the Monster Rally record. Yes, uh, yes. He, he does. He does the voice of Dracula. That's right. He's all dead over on, that album. Yeah. Dead on, dead on, Bela Lugosi. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, 
got to got to work briefly with Paul Fries on a series of radio commercials in the late 1970s. Uh-huh. And uh, what a voice. Oh man. Oh man. Well, you listen you you mentioned Lou Jean Sanders and she had been, you know, a TV star as uh Babs Riley on the life of Riley. Yeah. Uh, for uh William Bendix's daughter for years. And she was making the jump to features at that point and didn't really make that jump. Um, she didn't really do a whole lot after leaving the life of Riley, which happens a lot to, to TV sitcom people. Yep. And, you know, Lou Jean, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Julie Redding really didn't do all that much either. She did not, a little bit, but not much. Not the, not the kind of recurring presence you expect uh, of uh, uh, Bert I. Gordon. No, no, no. Affiliated stars. Uh, you know, Carlson was probably too classy for a Gordon film, but did he care? No, he threw himself into it. So, Michael, would you uh, would you recommend Tormented? I would not hesitate. I think we've made that abundantly clear just mm-hmm. from the outpouring of enthusiasm. Not a picture. <laughs> I, not a picture I think of constantly, but when I do, I. Uh, when I do think of it, that makes me want to go see it again. It does. You know, Joey, when we're watching it, Joey said it reminded him of Rebecca with all of the, the like the lonely waves and stuff coming up on the. And in a way, he's right. I mean, it's got that kind of sad, weird kind of, um, I don't know. Uh, that mournful intensity that you yes. get out of, out of uh, Curtis Harrington's film Night Tide. Night Tide, perfect example. <clears throat> certainly Night Tide. Certainly, I, I, I would say certainly Carnival of Souls, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Burke Harvey film, which, yep. uh, which, which reminds you of a lot of like lost soul pictures or stories, you know, Bierce, uh, occurrence at Alfred mm-hmm. Village, mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, I might. Even, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's it's funny. I've I've been I've been reading a lot of Harold Gray lately, the cartoonist uh-huh. who did Little Orphan Annie. Right. And it's quite amazing how <laughs> you got to wonder. It's a stretch, but uh, uh, Gray often depicted um, rascally musicians and authors, <laughs> uh, creative types whose um, whose consciences aren't quite fully functional. Mm-hmm. And who, of course, in the character of Orphan Annie, uh, develop something resembling a conscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty strange how that happens. And uh, yeah, Gordon Gordon takes a lot of razzing for his effects, which I mm-hmm. think, and that concentration on his um, rough and ready special effects often obscures the grimmer intensity of his stories. You know, he had George Worthing Yeats writing his screenplays. For him. Yes. Uh, he, he had uh, he had everything but the studio resources. And Gordon was too proud of Maverick to entrust his effects. Well, <laughs> he didn't have the budget for Ray Harryhausen. He didn't have the, uh, the optical uh, values that Universal Pictures would have used, for example. Right. Um, but uh, fortunately, he did everything himself, and he and he didn't up he didn't end up with those goofy monsters like Paul Blaisdell made for American <laughs> International. Pictures. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure enough. 
And he, uh, you know, this is a departure for him, although, as you say, an amazing colossal man, he kind of, you know, he, he kind of tries to do the same thing that, uh, uh, that was, was done in, uh, in the incredible shrinking man with Matheson. You know, he tries yeah. to sort of ponder the, the, the implications of all of that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he also ponders the implications of the fact that, and present company accepted, Michael, you as a musician and a writer, but, you know, musicians and writers sometimes are pretty, um, pretty self-involved people. Oh, yeah. Don't and, you think I know uh, it? <laughs> yeah, don't you think I do too? And uh, if you don't, I, it's 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 you know Gordon was Gordon was an existentialist. Gordon was a hep cat, as the jazz interests demonstrate. Right. Um, and he also was a family man who knew how to build build a close knit production company uh, around his own household. Right. Right. And I I remember Susan talking about. Having one of the the uh, like martini glasses or something from Attack of the Puppet People in their house and like how giant it was and they like kept book matches in it for years. You yeah. know, that's, imagine walking into Gordon's home and having this giant martini glass with book matches in it. I mean, that's what she did every day. You know, I mean, just the oh, way that yeah. worked. And and of course, his large scale props were practical, didn't require special effect photography. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I would put I would, uh, puppet people's large scale props. I'd put them up there against what uh, what Hal Roach had created for a uh, Laurel and Hardy film called Bratz, where they mm-hmm. played children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A room full of giant furniture. <laughs> there you go. Well, we uh, we're obviously very very bullish on uh, on tormented, and the great thing is you can see it for nothing on on YouTube, and yeah. a, a good print. So uh, so we'd like to recommend that, and uh, also if you want to read more about. Susan Gordon and my visit to uh, California, uh, Forgotten Horrors Volume Seven. We uh, do a lot of uh, uh, go in, go in fairly good detail about that that summer of sixty two when I visited Susan. We also talk a lot about her uh, about uh, her other films and Bert, some of Bert's other films as well. So, Forgotten Horrors Volume Seven. I want to mention Michael that um, our uh, friend Chris Mounts out there. Oh yeah, <laughs> has a whole run now. He has bought every Forgotten Horrors book that we have out. Well, you can't buy loyalty like that. You can't buy loyalty like that. That's exactly right. And now he's starting in. I think he's getting ready to go get a Fantasy in the Sand because he's uh, he's getting ready to to uh, hone in on Forgotten Horrors presents work. Oh so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so thank you, Chris. We really appreciate that, and uh, thanks to everybody who is supporting this uh, podcast by buying the Forgotten Horrors books and the Forgotten Horrors Presents books, and buying the stuff that Michael and I do. Michael does a lot of uh, uh, musical stuff online as well as books, and uh, and uh, I have some books online, and we really like it when and and it seems like also Joey. We're talking to our producer engineer, Joey Hambrick, now. And also, it seems like whenever one of these goes up, we do see a jump in our sales online of different things. And so we really are, are very appreciative of that. That's kind of what keeps us going. I guess so. Now, what about your uh, latest projects? What if someone goes to the uh, to, goes to, let's say, Amazon.com? What's the most recent thing you're going to find from uh, from MHP? 
Well, we uh, we don't have it on Amazon yet, but we just completed the release of the new vinyl edition of my 1981 production of Ray Sharp live at the Bluebird nightclub. Nice. Nice. One of the great Fort Worth based blues men and one of his most um, most memorable performances getting out of the getting out of the lounge music circuit and back mm-hmm. onto the blues club scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Got a lot of things in progress there and uh, just about to go to work on uh, the first ever release of some long lost master tapes by Doyle Bramhall. Oh, very good. Very oh, yeah. Good. Who, mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, who had, I think, one major release in his lifetime, but uh, this wasn't it. And uh, we've uh, secured the master recordings from the late uh, '80s, and getting ready, uh, getting ready to have them transferred to a uh, nice shiny vinyl platter. Nice, nice. We should also mention you've become a columnist for a new magazine, correct? Yes, starting, not, starting a new, a new columnist. Column. Yes, yeah. start, yeah, starting, in fact, starting with one you're familiar with, a topic you're familiar with, uh, for Fort Worth Magazine, a monthly feature on, um, hey, obscurities. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but fascinating obscurities. And, of course, the introductory uh, introductory piece is a uh, chronicle of the other Rolling Stones, from Texas in yes. the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And, you know, I'm still doing a, a column. I'm, I'm coming up on, gosh, what would that be? 2006, 16, about 16, 17 years now. I've been doing a regular column for Oklahoma magazine. Right. So there right. you go. It's a, That's a big influence on what I'm doing. Well, very good. You're a big influence on what I'm doing. It's just <laughs> kumbaya and a mutual admiration society so there you go michael thank you and thanks to everybody for listening to the forgotten horse podcast we never we have not decided what we're going to come up with next time but we really sincerely hope you'll enjoy it we hope we will too